0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. Large cities across China, including Shanghai, were put into full or partial lockdowns during 2022 as the country pursued its zero COVID policy. There were tight restrictions on people's movement, as well as mass testing. The impact on the economy has been severe. Gross domestic product, one of the most important ways of showing how well, or badly an economy is doing, rose just 0.4% year on year in the second quarter, missing expectations as the lockdowns curbed industrial activity and hit consumer spending. China's government is looking for a way out and has prepared a stimulus programme to boost the economy. Yet there's a risk of making matters worse if the stimulus racks up more debt and creates problems in the property sector. Well, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Paul Hodges, the founder of New Normal Consulting. Paul, we're recording this podcast in the summer of 2022. You're in Portugal. I'm in London. We're both allowed to move freely without wearing masks. That's not the case in China, though, is it? No, it isn't.
1: You've seen Wuhan, the origin of the uh, coronavirus in uh, 2020, uh, going back. 1 million people going back under lockdown recently. And I've seen estimates of 300 million or more people subject to them to some extent across China, which is a very worrying situation.
0: Talk us through the zero COVID approach then uh, and what it means for China's economy. I mentioned that there was a 0.4% contraction of GDP in the second quarter of 2022. How does that compare to what we've seen in the past, and uh, how do you see the outlook for
1: the rest of the year? If we look back, say 20 years, uh, what we see is that Deng Xiaoping's opening up policy from 1977, 1978, after the death of Mao, led to a gradual but very steady increase in the economy. And by 2001, China was opening up and joining the World Trade Organization. And for a period, there was really fantastic growth, uh, double figures, because China became the manufacturing capital of the world. But then in 2008, there was the financial crisis and China abandoned what had been a very sensible and stable policy, and instead went on to what we can only describe as being subprime on steroids. So in other words, all the bad things that the Federal Reserve had done in the States in the run-up to the subprime crisis, it did them, but on a bigger scale. So we're talking today, uh, you know, sort of in 2022, uh, about $40 trillion having been pushed out in stimulus. And the real estate sector is 29% of GDP. It's the largest asset class in the world. And so if anything goes wrong with the real estate market, then China is in trouble and we're all in trouble. And unfortunately, there are an awful lot of things uh, that can go wrong and that are starting to go wrong.
0: Um, I want to share a couple of quotes with you from some rather distinguished economists. Can I start with uh, Wei Zhang, who's the chief economist at Pinpoint Asset Management? Now, he said that China's economic growth is still much lower than its potential. What does he mean by that, lower than its potential, please? I think you'd
1: probably have to ask him. But if, if you ask me, I would agree with the quote. And what I would say is really going back to what we were talking about uh, with Deng's opening up and this enormous mistake that uh, China made in 2008, 2009, going on to subprime on steroids because what China is faced with is a need to really change the terms of which it's doing business. There's a very famous uh, concept uh, of how uh, growth develops in a developing country, which says that for the first 20 or so years, you basically have a free ride because you take people off the land where, yes, they're working quite hard, harvest and seed time and so on, but the rest of the time they're probably not doing very much. And then they move into the cities where they can be working five, six, in some cases, seven days a week. So so you get a natural boost to growth because suddenly people are working harder. But after about 20 years or so, that level of, of change has really exhausted itself. And you now need to move on to a world where individuals have more say in what they're doing. So instead of being told what to do, they have to take more initiative. And that is always a bit of a struggle because the existing government wants to keep people under control, but if you want economic growth, you have to liberalize. I think that my therefore, my interpretation of what Xi Wei is saying is that we're looking at a world where China is well below its potential and needs to completely change its policies if it's going to achieve what it could do.
0: Let me give you another quote from um, a leading economist, Professor Michael Pettis at Peking University. He said, China's slowdown is the almost automatic result of problems that have been building up for over a decade. And at a very minimum, it will take a huge shift towards radically new policies to prevent growth from slowing much, much more. Now, according to Professor Pettis, there's a particular problem because the growth model relies heavily on infrastructure and property
1: investment. What's your perspective? You know, what I was saying about the the background to all this and subprime on steroids, I'm very much in Michael's camp. Uh, I, I think he's absolutely right here that, you know, what you should be doing is you should be empowering people, you should be retraining them to take on you know more complex work uh, as needed in today's information age. You should be sorting out the hukou problem uh, and allowing people to live in cities and so on and to bring their children up and go to school there and so on, all these things. But the problem is the inbuilt resistance of the system. It goes back to the idea that People who are already doing well today, out of the system, don't want change. This is Machiavelli, you know, going back 500 years. Machiavelli said uh, very clearly, you know, if people are doing well today, they will resist change. And the problem is that if you're promoting change, people aren't too sure, well, will I do better or will will I not do better? Will it actually happen? You know, if I support you but it doesn't work, and so on. So you have very tepid support for new policies and you have very strong entrenched support for old policies. And that unfortunately is China's dilemma.
0: Do you think Xi Jinping will get the blame for that? Are, are people going to say, as they do in other countries, well, the economic problems
1: that we face are the fault of our leaders? It's a really interesting question. And you know, we've always had two factions in the communist part, two main factions. There's been the princelings, the people who uh, were there, you know, descendants of the people who were there when Mao uh, ended his uh, long march, and the populists, which was basically the sort of young communist league. And there was always a balance, you know, three or four five or four or whatever, you know, the size of the Politburo between those. There were some extraordinary events uh, before the relevant national congress ten years ago, Bo Xilai and so on, and you know murders and everything, everything else, and that allowed she to consolidate his position with the princelings. So he actually took a six to one majority, which was quite very unusual. And Premier Lee, who was the one uh, supposedly, you know, he's the, he's the, the populist. Uh, he was given the premiership. He was given supposedly the economic portfolio, but in fact. She took up and set up a new body, the leading working group on the economy. And, you know, for years, we hardly heard anything of Lee. He would appear once a year for the work conferences, and and that was about it. But in a sign that that internal factionalism has come back in again, what we've seen is that Premier Lee has now been across state media for weeks on end. And he's been leading this, and he's been having conferences with thousands of people on this, and he's been talking about this problem and so on. You know, we're getting into that very tricky period before the National Congress. And I think we just have to sit and watch. Well,
0: I don't think it's going to completely change its policies, Paul. Uh, But the government has said that it's going to try to stimulate the economy. Um, They're talking about making more loans to businesses. They're talking about spending public money on infrastructure projects. Uh, People will be encouraged to take out loans to buy new cars, that kind of thing. Um, Is that going to be enough to uh, pull them away from the threat of recession?
1: Well, the issue they've got today is twofold. Firstly, if you're going to continue with zero Covid, you cannot expect the economy to recover. It's just impossible because you keep closing down factories, you keep knocking people up at home and so on. So what you have to do if you want to start a recovery is you have to you know you have to accept that the Chinese vaccines don't work and you need to go to Pfizer or one of the others and buy some mRNA vaccines. And you need to insist that the older people who are generally not very well vaccinated at the moment in China anyway, but who are most at risk, you have to insist that they get vaccinated. Because otherwise you risk having literally millions of people die. So so that's what you have to do but you're not gonna do that because you're coming up to the National Party Conference uh, in, uh, in sometime in quarter quarter four, and that would be an admission of, of failure. And all the things you've said about the West opening up being wrong uh, would come back to balance. So it's not gonna happen. So it's very hard to see if you're going to continue with zero COVID at least until the end of the year, which I think is a base case. I mean, there was a suggestion a month ago that zero COVID would continue for five years, which prompted an enormous outpouring, as you know, of, uh, of, of angst on social media, and the statement was quickly withdrawn. But it, it does indicate that there's not much chance of a major shift. So the rest is all just sort of um, flag waving. Uh, if you don't deal, you, know, you, you, you can't deal with, with the problem by tackling the symptoms, and the symptom is a zero COVID policy.
0: We've been talking about the situation within China,
1: but you know the podcast is
0: called China in Context. What are the international implications of all this? You could
1: you could take this in a number of directions. You could you could hope, uh, as Michael Pettis and others do, that the government will, you know, move on from zero COVID, that it will go back to the policies that it was starting to pursue. You know, President Xi at one point in 2017 said. very firmly, you know, houses are for living in, they're not for speculation. That was a very fine statement. It implied that he was taking on the vested interest that we've described and, you know, he was the president and therefore he had considerable momentum. So if he could go back to that, it will be tough, but one would be quite optimistic, Uh, you know, taking a third term, that he would be able to move that through. Okay, you're going to have a downturn for four or five years. That's inevitable. But after that, you can rebuild and the green shoots will come out. If you stop, stop wasting money in one corner and you start putting it to proactive use, that must be a good thing overall. The other thing, of course, is that if the economy isn't going very well, and we're seeing this across the rest of the world, what happens is that sectional interests come to the fore. And instead of saying, "Well, actually, let's do this for you know, the, the good of the world," we're all doing better, and so let's all contribute. And I don't mind. You know, maybe you're doing a bit better than me, but I'm actually doing pretty well, so I don't mind you're doing okay, uh, Duncan. I'm sure it will come back my way uh, next week, sort of thing. But if things are not doing very well, and we're all in recession, and things are getting worse, you then get internationalism, and uh, this debate over Taiwan. Uh, which is stirred up by both sides. I'm not blaming China for this, it's being stirred up by both sides. They've all got an interest. Um, You know, we we, we, we both know the UK very well. We both did history in the UK. And we know that there was a period in the medieval times when if a king got into trouble at home, he would go and fight the French. And we can see that today playing out. What is the conservative government doing? Let's fight the French. Everybody's in favor of that. And the French like a flight too. So, uh, you know, if you've got Brexit this time, as opposed to uh, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the, the old rules still apply. So the international implications of this are, are pretty worrying, particularly when you already have an invasion going on in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, you've got record high levels of natural gas prices, and you've essentially got, you know, three horsemen of the apocalypse riding. So you've got, you've got COVID still going on, as we've discussed. Uh, you've got a war going on. And we're now moving into a famine because the natural gas is too expensive to make into ammonia. And if it's too expensive to make into ammonia, you can't make fertilizer. And Without nitrogen fertilizer, a large number of people in the world will die of starvation.
0: Well, we've covered a wide range of subjects in this uh, conversation. And some of them, I feel, deserve another whole podcast on their own. But thank you very much for giving us an overview. That was Paul Hodges, founder of New Normal Consulting. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.